Well, the lesson that I've prepared this morning is one that you might find interesting, uh, one that you might also find challenging, and I'll go ahead and say that at the beginning. Because as we talk about a subject like demons, it is a subject that dabbles in the realm of the limits of what we can really understand. We're talking about the spiritual realm that is invisible to our physical eyes. And there are a lot of different people who have a lot of different ideas. But the Bible gives us a lot of helpful instruction about this subject. And so this morning, I do want to speak to you about dealings with demons. We live in a very polarized culture. Whether it is religion or politics or really almost any subject these days, it seems like people tend to gravitate towards extremes. As Paul Earnhardt would often say, there is a ditch on both sides of the road. And I thought about how that is true in many biblical subjects, in many things that the Bible tells us about, that there is a ditch on both sides of the road. And I think that that is especially true in regards to this subject. There are many people who are hypersensitive to demonic activity today. There are a lot of things that are sensationalized and proliferated by social media, by YouTube, by things like that. And there are many people who think about demonic forces terrorizing them or their loved ones, almost like ghosts or boogeymen. Sometimes people will come to believe that a demon is haunting them at night or attached to their house or something like that. Some people might think about demon possession or exorcism or deliverance ministry as something like you might see in a Hollywood movie, you know, where somebody floats up above a bed and spins around and things like that. But then there are others who reject the literal existence of demons altogether. As our culture tends to grow more secular, it seems like more and more people think that they've progressed beyond uh, beliefs in the supernatural, seeing them as antiquated or archaic. Many conditions that were once considered to be the result of demonic activity are now believed to be merely physical or mental illnesses. And so many people have concluded that belief in demons is really just ignorance. There are even people who would call themselves Christians, who would look at what the Bible teaches, and they would say, well, the men who wrote the Bible were simply men of their time. They were superstitious. And so we understand that what they attributed to supernatural forces can now better be explained scientifically. And so you have a very superstitious view on one side, and you have a very secular view on the other. And I believe that the Bible teaches us that the truth is actually somewhere in the middle. And so what I would like to do this morning is present what I believe the Bible tells us about our dealings with demons. We will be looking at the reality of demons, the power of demons, and then finally how to wage war against them. 
So the reality of demons, the power of demons, and how to wage war against them. But let's begin by talking about the existence of demons themselves. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament mention demons or unclean spirits or spiritual forces of evil. There are far too many references for us to be able to look at all of them, but I'd like to start in Matthew chapter 4 with verses 23 through 25. This is actually the first mention of demons in the New Testament, and it's in connection to Jesus' ministry. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 23, it says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame, I'm sorry. Excuse me. Verse 24. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Now, again, this is the very first mention of demons in the New Testament. And verse 24 is actually very helpful for us. Because what it does is it clearly distinguishes those sufferings that are caused by demons from sufferings that would be caused by physical or mental problems. Um, It says that they brought him all the sick. And then what Matthew goes on to do is to categorize the sick into distinct categories. First of all, he talks about those afflicted with various diseases and pains. Secondly, those oppressed by demons. And then thirdly, those having seizures and paralytics. And so what this does for us is it does teach us that those suffering from demons were not merely being affected by physical or mental illnesses. It was something distinct from that. Something that was different than your run-of-the-mill kinds of things like that. And so as Jesus' ministry unfolds, casting out demons was a characteristic aspect of his work. It happened many times. It was sort of like his calling card that wherever Jesus went, that he often would cast out these evil forces. If you look in Mark chapter 1, I'll just use this as an example of the reality of demons as Jesus encountered them. Mark chapter 1 in verse 21. It says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region 
of Galilee. And so clearly, if you believe the New Testament, if you believe that the New Testament authors actually recorded what actually happened, you have to believe in the existence of demons. If you believe Jesus, you have to believe that demons are real, evil, spiritual beings. And so that leads us to the next subject of discussion is, well, what is the power of demons? What kind of power do they actually wield? In places like this, in Mark chapter 1, we see demon possession as something that happens when a demon takes control of a person. Even having the ability to speak through him. In Mark 9, there's another case where there's a man who comes to Jesus with a demon-possessed son. And if you remember there, he talks about how the demon has been making him foam at the mouth, grind his teeth, become rigid, and even to cast himself into the fire. And I'm just going to say that I don't think that demons affect us exactly the same way today. I don't really have time to make that point as robustly as I might like to um, at the moment. But my reasoning on this subject is very similar to my reasoning about miraculous spiritual gifts. You may remember a sermon I preached about miraculous spiritual gifts not a long time ago. But there are places like 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that indicate that they were given for a temporary purpose and a temporary time. And you might see those kinds of things grouped together in a place like Matthew chapter 10 and verse 1. In Matthew 10 and verse 1, Jesus is giving a special authority to his 12 disciples or his apostles. And it says here that he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And so, just like we do not have the authority to heal every disease and every affliction today, I don't believe that we have the authority to cast out unclean spirits in the same way that Jesus' apostles did. And if we don't have the authority to cast them out like they did in the first century, then it seems logical to me that God would deny their ability to possess us like they possessed people in the first century too. And so that's just my quick explanation for why I believe we don't see exactly the same kind of demon possession today. But let me be very clear. That doesn't mean that we can just ignore the danger of demons. Just because we might believe that we won't see exactly this kind of thing happening today, it does not mean that we can just shrug off the danger and say, whew, Thank goodness that we don't have to deal with that. In fact, there are several places in the New Testament that encourage us to take our conflict with demons seriously. And perhaps the most clear place is what Brent read from us earlier from Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to come here a couple of times. But first of all, just look at what he says in Ephesians 6 verses 11 and 12. Here Paul says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Do you understand what Paul is saying to us here? He's saying that we are in a spiritual battle. That we are at conflict with spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That you and I have to contend with Satan and his angels. Now that ought to get our attention. If we ever get into the habit of just sort of floating through our Christian life and, you know, showing up at church a couple of times and just kind of going through the motions, scriptures like this ought to wake us up to say, hey, if you're not careful, there is extreme danger that will hurt you. But he reminds us that our conflict is not against flesh and blood in verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But unfortunately, sometimes that is all that we can see. We get upset with people. You know, when people annoy us or frustrate us or disappoint us. When people cut us off in traffic. When people don't do their jobs well, things like that. We get really upset. At people. Sometimes we get upset with our circumstances. You know, we think about the situation that we're in and how we wish that it was better or different, and so that's what we focus on changing. Sometimes we get upset about sicknesses or diseases, terrible conditions that might cause us physical suffering uh, or discomfort or even death. And Paul is saying, if you think that those things are what we're up against, then you're missing the truth. The truth is, we are at war with cosmic powers. We are at war with spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And verse 11 actually gives us a clue about how they threaten us. Because he says here that, if we will put on the whole armor of God, that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. I think that's a really interesting word. I think I've said this before, but when I think about scheming, I kind of think of like an old cartoon with, you know, a character with a pointy mustache doing his fingers like this. But the picture here is actually much more sinister than that, isn't it? In fact, the word scheme in Greek is actually the same root word that we get the word schematic or blueprint. That's the idea. And so Paul is reminding us that the devil and his angels are scheming against us. Like they are making plans, blueprints, at how to harm us spiritually. And that's a pretty intimidating realization. But the word scheme also implies deception. You know, when you scheme against somebody, what you're really doing is you're laying a trap. And again, if you think back to your Saturday morning cartoons, whenever, you know, the coyote would make a trap, 
he would try to disguise it. You know, he would try to make it look like there was a safe place. Or maybe I've got it backwards. Maybe the roadrunner did it to the coyote. But you get the idea. That a trap isn't very effective if it's obvious. But a trap catches those who don't recognize it. When you think about Satan, wouldn't you agree that deception is Satan's greatest tool? Jesus said about him in John chapter 8 and verse 44 that he is a liar and the father of lies. Even if you think back to Satan's very first temptation, how was it that Satan tempted Eve to sin? It was by deceiving her. If you look in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we have the account of that. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, if you look at this very familiar account of Eve being tempted by the serpent, who we know to be Satan, what is it that the serpent made Eve do? He didn't make her do anything. You could even ask the question, what is it that the serpent commanded Eve to do? What did the serpent tell Eve to do? It's nothing. He didn't make her do anything. He didn't command her to do anything. He didn't tell her to do anything. But he got in her head. He brought doubts into her mind. He got her to think that what was good was bad, and what was bad was good. And she acted on her own desires. Some of you may have read the Screwtape Letters before. It's a very well-known book by C.S. Lewis, and it's a very imaginative one. But it's an excellent depiction of the way that Satan and his demons operate. It's a series of letters written from one demon to another. Uncle Screwtape to his nephew Wormwood. And in the letters, he is giving advice to his nephew demon about how to tempt the patient, which is the subject, one of us, to become unfaithful to the enemy who is God. It's a really twisted kind of fiction, and you really have to kind of, you know, twist your mind into it to be able to understand it. But when you can really get into it, you start to appreciate the way demons deceive us, the way that demons tempt us. And you might even begin to see some instances where you recognize, wow, I think demons have done exactly this to me before. 
I think 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1 gives us an insight into this angle. Here, when Paul writes to Timothy, he's warning him about the impact that demons could have on the people that are around him in Ephesus. And he reminds him, he says in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now, I think that this is where demons pose the greatest threat to us today. Is that by deceitful teaching, they can cause us to become devoted to things that are lies. We can become devoted to things that are simply not true. And so the power of demons is primarily deception. And we let them have power over us when we let ourselves become deceived. So how do we wage war against them? Now that we've seen the reality of demons and the power of demons, how do we fight back? Well, if we understand that demons' primary weapon against us is deception, well, then it should be rather intuitive that the way that we fight back is with truth. And again, if you go back to Ephesians 6 one more time, you notice here in verse 10 that Paul writes that we ought to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That we need to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Paul wants to remind us not only of this terrifying reality that we are in a spiritual conflict against the devil and his angels, but he also wants to remind us that we can be strong. That we never have to come to a point where we say, I had no choice but to sin. I had no choice but to give in to it. He reminds us in 1 Corinthians 10 that with every temptation, there's a way of escape. But the instruction for us here in Ephesians 6 is that if we will be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, that we can withstand all of the schemes that Satan and his angels would put before us. That we can stand firm. And the way that he tells us to do that is to take up the whole armor of God. Now, there's plenty that we could say about that. But as you look at the armor as it's described in the following verses, you might notice that it begins and ends with truth. In verse 14, it begins with putting on uh, the belt of truth. That's like the centerpiece that everything else hangs on is truth. And then when he gets to the end in verse 17, he concludes with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And so the battle against demons is fought and won with the truth of God's word. 
It reminds me of a comment that Paul sort of just makes in passing in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 11, where there he mentions that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. And so to overcome the spiritual forces of evil in our lives, we need to overcome our ignorance with the understanding that comes from God as he's revealed it to us through his word. Paul is instructing Timothy in a similar way in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Here he builds on what he established in 1 Timothy, and he gives even more direct instruction for Timothy about how to fight this good fight. And in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 24, he says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. In our conflict with demons, I believe this is where we need to focus our efforts not in being afraid in a superstitious kind of way, not in being um, swept up in emotional kinds of fears, but concentrating on the way that demons are responsible for leading people to believe lies, leading people to think that they can find satisfaction in the things of this world, leading people to think that there's truth in teachings that are in conflict with the gospel of Jesus. When we lead people to a knowledge of the truth, we help them come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Don't you know the devil would love to keep people ensnared and enslaved? He would love for his demons to keep us living in our ignorance, in our worldliness, in our arrogance, in our fears, in our anxieties, in our bitterness. And what God's word does is it gives us a way to obliterate all that darkness into light, to cast out any demons that might be deceiving us, and to walk in the truth of God's word. I really think that's the idea in 2 Corinthians 10. In verse 3, Paul writes, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. The weapons of our warfare are spiritual. We have the word of God to shine light into the darkness. We have knowledge that can combat the deception and the ignorance. We have revelation from God about how to be truly free. And the more that we see it in God's word, the less control demons will have over us. Well, I'd like to conclude with a story in Mark chapter 5. 
In Mark 5, we have a very dramatic story about a man who is afflicted with demons. And I'll just go ahead and say, as I've said earlier, I don't think that demons affect us exactly like this today, but I think the more that we look at this, the more that we'll see the similarities and the relevance. Mark chapter 1 and verse 1 says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now, this is an extreme case of demon possession. And it is a miserable condition. We read here about a man who has spiritual problems. He's got demons inside of him. But those spiritual problems are affecting him physically and mentally. Even socially, I mean, he can't even integrate with society. He's just sort of like out here, chained up, cutting himself, living by himself. When you think about it, it's really not all that different from the way demons affect us. When we fall for their schemes, when we give in to temptations, we invite spiritual problems. And those spiritual problems can affect us physically. They can affect us mentally. They can even affect us socially. And what else you notice about this man is that he's not being helped by merely physical measures. In verses 3 and 4, you read about how, you know, they keep chaining him up and he keeps breaking the chains apart. And in verse 4, it says, no one had the strength to subdue him. Human efforts to help him have failed. The strongest chains that they can find are not strong enough. But in verse 6, it says that when he saw Jesus, he ran and fell down before him. And in verse 7, he was crying out with a loud voice saying, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. I have a question about verse 7. I don't know if that is the man speaking or if that is the demon speaking. It's really hard to say. The lines are kind of blurred. 
But in verse 9, it's the demon who replies when Jesus asks him what his name is. But isn't this what it's like to come to know Jesus? To fall down at his feet and to know that he has the power to help us when all other powers have failed. That he can save our souls like nothing else can. But there's some tension with that sometimes. Maybe we come running eagerly to Jesus saying, Jesus, I need you. I want you. You're the one that can save me. But then as we get too close to him, we start to feel like, but please don't ask me to do anything too hard. Don't change me too dramatically because I kind of like the life that I'm living and I don't want it to be upset too much. And so there's tension. In verse 6, he runs and falls down before him. But in verse 7, he says, um, do not torment me. But Jesus is able to give us total freedom from our demons if we let him. Even if we have 2,000 of them making our lives miserable. Well, now I want you to see the conclusion of the story. In verse 14, it says, The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened, and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Isn't that a good picture of what Jesus can do for us. That we come to him ugly and naked and pitiful, just with all kinds of problems because of all of the demons that we've allowed to control us and consume us and deceive us and torment us. But Jesus can clothe us. He can put us in our right mind. He graciously allows us to see through the snares of the devil and the deceptions of demons. And he shows us what the good life is really all about. He gives us real life, abundant life, and eternal life. And when he does that for us, well then we can go and tell others about what he's done. In verse 18, the story goes on to say that as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him, and he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. I'd like to use these verses as the invitation this morning. Because the truth is, every one of us is in our own spiritual battle. Every one of us has demons to contend with, and I have my own. I've got demons to contend with in my life. But what I can attest to you this morning, what I can vouch for is the fact that Jesus is helping me to fight a winning battle and not a losing one. That one by one, he is casting the demons out. That he's helping me to see more clearly, to live more righteously, to be truly in my right mind. 
And he has the power to do that for every one of us. And so as somebody who has been helped by Jesus, as somebody who has seen what the Lord can do in me and what he's continuing to do in me, I want to encourage you to find the same power. And we, as a church, believe that Jesus is with us and he is helping us and that each one of us individually is doing our best to follow him. And as he blesses all of us, we want to encourage you, if you're on the outside, to come to him. Because that's the Lord's invitation. As his people, we encourage you to come to him for salvation too. And so, demons do pose a very real danger to us. But there is nothing that is too difficult for God. There is no amount of demons that you might have in your life that Jesus is not able to overcome. He is strong enough if you are willing to give your life to him. If we can help you in some way, we want to invite you to come to the front and let us know what your needs are while we stand together and sing.